Welcome to Shmeman Speaks, featuring the words and wisdom of Father Alexander Shmeman from the archives of St. Vladimir's Seminary in New York. Give you a very general outline of this course and also try to convey to you, I don't know how successfully, uh, the difficulties we encounter in dealing with Mariology for all the tools that we have are intellectual, scientific, historical, archaeological, are tools which in uh, the last analysis are not adequate. They, they, they can, of course, uh, they, they uh, remind me of a uh, Senate hearing, to, to say something which is going on right now, you know. In other words, the desire in advance is to reduce the whole thing to kind of evidence which can be easily classified and uh, not going beyond that. However, what is missing in this investigation that we find in historical books and recently there have appeared some um, angry books on Mariology and what uh, is missing before that is the, and not, not necessarily because of any ill will, uh, but simply the tools are not adequate to grasp something which cannot be measured by those tools. And that is what I always refer to as the experience of the church. Now this simply is absent as a theological battle. Uh, even, uh, even in our westernized orthodox theology, you know, the, those centuries of post-patristic theology, uh, uh, reduce the whole theology to texts, texts, no text, no reality, uh, uh, no mention of the nativity of the Virgin in the Bible, she wasn't born, uh, you know, everything, only that which can be in a, in a minutes, be tested, uh, measured, is acceptable. On the other hand, to simply say the experience of church is such, you know, and then therefore we simply accept it and shut up. Uh, is also a bad uh, theology. It's, it, it has to be. Therefore, we have to sort of forge almost new tools for that kind of uh, approach, and that has never been done, as I told you last time, concerning the, the veneration of Mary. It's something that uh, uh, is done in the church, has never been uh, studied in the classroom, and there is a kind of... Um, uh, a discrepancy here. Uh, discrepancy concerning even the essential question. What is that veneration? Sometimes using those tools which are just described, uh, I, uh, we can reach very strange conclusions. The students here know very well that prayer, which is read uh, at the end of the great compound, and each time I read it in the English translation, please, and come to, to, to that uh, definition of Mary, for thou art our mediatrix. You know, uh, one more step and we make her co-redemptor <laughs> and the savior of the world. Obviously, the evidence of such text must be somehow understood within a wider context. Does it mean that every word that we 
On the one hand, we have that silence of the text at the beginning, which we should deal today. On the other hand, after that, we have a incredible amount of those texts. What, which texts uh, reflect, express, indicate, refer to, to that experience of the church? Which texts are, let's put it, uh, rhetorical texts? Which, how, what is the criteria? Am I to decide, I like this, I don't like that? So you see, uh, what I'm trying to say at the beginning of the second lecture is that although we'll start going now, today, through this historical development, although a sort of outline of that, uh, the, the, the main difficulties constantly refer, and I, I would like simply to use at the beginning of the second lecture uh, that famous French expression, it's le ton qui fait la musique, it's the tone that makes music. You can have the most fantastic choir, the best uh, voices, Maria Callas of blessed memory, and uh, who not, you know, but it will depend on the little misfit choir director to say do la fa and, and, and make that choir sing, otherwise you will have, now, the same mutatis mutandis can be applied to the liturgy. One must have an ear to hear it. If one approaches that with, with uh, not with that desire to hear here is certain experience. We are in a dead end. That's why Christ, when he spoke, always added, let him who have the ears hear you. And then he also said, they will have, with his, their eyes they will be look and not see. With their ears, with their ears they will be listening and not hear. And that is exactly the difficulty we feel. We can analyze, put together, uh, many scholars, the greatest uh, uh, scientific skill that analyzed those texts and, uh, uh, and came to radically different conclusions concerning them. One of them had the ear, the other, and uh, my example to, to, to bring to an end this introduction is the famous, uh, one of the probably greatest uh, historians of the early church, Hans Litzmann who wrote a uh, heavy book on the early liturgy. Truly one can say of that book that this man knew everything, and I would add, understood nothing. Uh, it's a sad example that one can know and not understand. Uh, he knows better all the history of St. Basil's text that, that all the Orthodox liturgists put together. But there was a kind of um, uh, a priori uh, uh, a priori uh, gadget built in, or maybe the total absence, typical for a prophecy, of the very idea of what the experience of the church could be, which made it impossible for him to understand. He had eyes, he looked, he didn't see. He had ears, he heard, he listened, he didn't hear. This is a little introduction. Now, we are facing, uh, as I said, the first, I mean, before we come, hopefully with my next lecture, to the great themes of Mariology, the real substance of this course being not any historical proof or archaeological analysis, but a, a, an invitation to listen together precisely to that music and therefore to understand its tone, to try to, to, to recapture that experience of the Church Today, however, the second preliminary question is, 
um, of uh, uh, the problem of um, certain uh, uh, certain um, facts, which, from the point of view of a uh, scientific analysis, may appear and have appeared as anomalies, something not quite normal. I mentioned as an illustration one of them in my first lecture, this passage from an almost total silence to an almost uh, exaggerated, uh, exaggerated uh, uh, presence of the texts. Uh, one speaks sometimes, some historians of the Marian cult speak of a real revolution, something which happened almost uh, ex nihilo, and therefore since nothing happens ex nihilo, they have to explain that, and they introduce all kinds of, of, of uh, causes, uh, developments, which have very little to do with Christianity itself, and certainly with the Church. So, um, uh, let's therefore uh, formulate this problem of the silence versus that mariological flood as our first flood problem. Uh, there is, uh, to briefly come back to, to, to that silence, it is, first of all, uh, has been described as the silence of the Bible, and specifically of the New Testament. If such is an argument of those historically minded people, if truly the veneration of Mary were something implied in that experience of the Church from the very beginning, and granted that not, not all of it was immediately developed, how can one explain the total silence on Mary of the earliest Christian writer, that means the epistles of St. Paul? This is, you know, the heaviest of all arguments. And in fact, you know, uh, really St. Paul never mentions Mary. His one text in Galatians, uh, which uh, is very famous simply because it's the only one mentioning that Christ was born of a woman. Not even, he not even uh, uh, uses that halma, which is translated from Hebrew usually as a virgin. Simply born of a woman. It's a famous Christological text. If, um, uh, although the, uh, the silence is not as heavy and and one fine mariological element in the synoptics and in John. Obviously, uh, uh, it, is, um, uh, it is also rather irregular. I cannot for risk the balance of this course and to go in any biblical exegesis. We'll come back to it in a different manner soon, but I'll just remind you of what I said before. We find in Matthew and Luke the nativity stories where Mary, of course, is central. Luke is the most mariological of all Gospels. We have, in addition to the nativity story, we have the Annunciation story. Uh, Matthew uh, has no Annunciation <coughs> but has the nativity. Mark is the least mariological Gospel, virtually uh, Passing on silence, and finally, John has her appearance in Cana of Galilee, and then at the end at the cross. All these, uh, each line of those texts, and uh, 
uh, uh, has been, of course, analyzed, weighed, and so on. And uh, the, if there is a consensus, uh, the consensus is, of course, that uh, it's very far from the great mariological development in the future. One can say that if the churches, if the Gospels, the New Testament texts, especially the Gospels, are the text written within the church, expressive of the church's faith, uh, there still is a tremendous distance separating the early biblical evidence from what we find, from simply the place of Mary in worship, let's say, after the 5th century in church uh, history. Finally, uh, after St. Paul, the Gospels, we come to the earliest liturgical evidence. Of course, we know very little, <coughs> at least not many details about the earliest drafting of the liturgy. But there again, obviously, uh, we will we do not find uh, uh, something which is very familiar to us. First of all, this constant uh, uh, prayer for her intercession. I mean, this is uh, intercession. She sort of, her position is interceding, praying for us. We do not find, in general, the idea of any intercession in the early Christian liturgy. Uh, uh, same applies to the saints. We do not find in the early liturgy uh, any specific isolation or specifically mariological material. I mentioned some of that material later on. Um, although, therefore, the silence is not, um, is not total and absolute, and as I will try to show, heard in a specific manner, that silence, in my opinion, is even very eloquent. However, <coughs> within this scientific, scholarly method, which can work only on the evidence. The total evidence, of course, uh, still should honestly lead to the conclusion that something happened which either accelerated or gave a new direction to something which was implicit, maybe, but certainly it, one cannot speak of a kind of simple, organic development. A little Mariology, more, 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 born and finally occupying. Something happened, and the real question is, what happened? And that takes me to uh, something which I consider to be very important, although I'm not agreed on that, uh, and which I explain on a, on a greater length in my book, Introduction to Liturgical Theology, uh, which for those of you who would like to maybe understand better what I'm trying to say, what I'll try to say briefly tonight, uh, might help. Now, and that is the general metamorphosis, the general change, or the difference, rather, the difference. A very substantial difference, which certainly exists between what would be called the early Christian worship and uh, the Christian worship, the liturgy of the Church, as we know it developing after the Constantinian peace, that means after the reconciliation of the Church with the converted Roman Empire. It is 
the understanding of that change, which to my, to my mind is the key to me, not only to, not only to, to, to Mariology, but certainly also to Mariology. And therefore, in order to um, give my later explanation of the development of Marian cult, a kind of base, substance, foundation, I must very briefly enumerate or rather, try to define, explain, give you the taste of what is the essence of the change that took place, not abruptly. And that's what means it makes it uh, more concealed, not by some uh, council, not something which can be decided upon. A change, uh, uh, nonetheless, which is very significant. We are, you know, so used to that uh, kind of uh, official history that uh, uh, we, uh, it's very difficult for us to, to, to even pay attention to certain uh, facts which the historians don't mention. I'll give you one other example which I consider as one of the greatest changes that took place uh, in the history of the church and reflects so much change in mentality, Christian mentality. It is that passing that change from the bishop being the normal celebrant of the worship to the priest, or rather, the coming into existence of that which you take for granted absolutely, and that is the parish. What is the parish? The parish is a church without the bishop. I don't mean it's without the bishop, of course the stationery is there. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, but it's a church in which the bishop is, uh, first of all, the boss of the priest, that's for sure. Right, uh, if the priest is not strong enough to even to, to, to liquidate that. Uh, the bishop is uh, a, a absolutely essential picture of the 75th anniversary. Uh, uh, and somebody for whom uh, people pray uh, uh, as prescribed. But uh, to say, you know, to, to come and to explain as I was in once uh, in a parish which is not too far from the former Father Paul's there's a parish and the old priest there said to me with great gusto, kind of evil delight, he said. I didn't have the bishop in this parish for 20 years. <laughs> uh, uh, now go and explain to that, uh, to that youth in that parish uh, the beautiful theories of Cyprian of Carthage. Episcopus in Ecclesia, Ecclesia in Episcopal. Don't do anything without the bishop. We do everything without the bishop. And usually thank God for that. So, and, so uh, uh, but this is a radical revolutionary change. How it happened that the presbyter, which in the whole canon law, by the way, read, ask Professor John Erickson, who knows it by heart by now, uh, uh, where, where is the priest mentioned as the head of the church? No, it's there, it's in our practice. The rector, who is the celebrant, the teacher, the pastor, is the priest, right? Where, where, where is the bishop? The bishop is the chief pastor, uh, but he's, uh, it, it's a totally different, the appearance of the parish. <laughs> and the explanation of why, it's not an accidental change, it's a, but it's a, now, if you find me one chapter in the history of the church, in which this is mentioned, be it Litzman, be it Bolot, Orthodox, Protestant, Catholic, you'll never find it. Uh, although every little change in the borders of the diocese, how the bishop became an archbishop and later patriarch, all that has been analyzed to, to the, so it's all, 
It's always a question about what do you want to know. Uh, if you do not have a question, there will be no answer. But if you want a specific uh, answer, which is already predetermined by your question, then you will not see certain absolutely, how to say, obvious realities, as if they never happened. I give that example because it's, it applies it, it very well to the change which I have in mind, which in my opinion has not been analyzed sufficiently. It has been, of course, studied, analyzed by the great liberal Western Protestant scholars. It is uh, uh, the basic thought of a man like Adolf Harnack, the great historian of the early church, the Pope, liberal Protestant scholarship to uh, fundamentally uh, express the history of the church in terms of the metamorphosis, changes. They all have read the greatest enemy of the human race, and that is Hegel, in which everything always develops by means of negation, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So, uh, of course, for Harnack, and today for many other positive phenomenological historians, the church has always been a change. Uh, a somewhat, someone who is read in those debates knows that one of the greatest uh, battles at the beginning of the century was the origin of the episcopate. In other terms, the, the Protestant liberal scholarship said that it was a kind of Presbyterian church and then uh, fighting the heresies, the monarchical episcopate appeared. Today, the wind seems to shift completely. It is the bishop who appears as being the original, uh, for other reasons, in another perspective. So, uh, the changes have been studied, but the changes have been studied with that presupposition in mind, that in fact, uh, something which was black became white, and so, without anyone noticing. Uh, the Harnack's famous theory, you know, that the early church believed that we are saved in the church. The church was salvation. The church after Constantine, just if the early one was the white church, the church which, which, uh, uh, which uh, experienced the church was also, then, under all kinds of... Uh, uh, influences, especially oriental and pessimistic, uh, uh, pessimistic um, um, uh, influences, salvation was pushed uh, again in the future. The church became the way to salvation, but not salvation, and so on and so forth. And you can, the bibliographies are endless here. And sometimes I, I want to cry when going to a big library. How many fantastic volumes! beautiful paper have been written today, no one reads that because there's nothing to read, you know, because some other scholar has swept all that out, saying so nonsense, and finds a new theory of that change. So, what then if we do not accept again that approach? Because we cannot, uh, how to say, uh, deprive ourselves of that fundamental, <laughs> uh, fundamental certitude of that the Church may change, that the, but the church is the church. <laughs> and, and, and therefore, those changes 
must be within a kind of uh, um, uh, unchangeless and eternal framework because the church is not an accidental institution but uh, uh, the, 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 the continued incarnation and Pentecost. Now, uh, it is simply because the voice inside us tells us that these Harnax reductions, Litzman reductions, Mircheliadis reductions, all that is not uh, uh, the explanation that we want uh, to, to, to um, uh, uh, go somewhat deeper. And uh, I would now present in very, again, simplified form how I understand that change. And once more, a radical change. For example, the appearance of feasts, which today for us is one of the basic uh, elements of tradition, but there did not exist, you know. Uh, Christmas is a, is a newcomer in, 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 in uh, of course, in relatively speaking, you know, by uh, the end of the third century, so what? but is totally absent any interest in, 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 in Bethlehem or things like that, is totally absent from the early Christian mentality. Things which for us are the most essential do not exist there. Uh, not only the feasts, but entire strata, for example, the, the, the cult of the saints. Uh, how many books have been written to claim that this has nothing to do with the early, uh, with the early um, uh, liturgy, and in fact, on the very formal evidence, this was what to us today is a saint, someone who has been canonized and uh, uh, to whom we pray ora pro nobis, pray for us. Uh, although a non-saint is the one for whom we pray. Uh, in the early church, uh, each one whom, about whom it can be said that he uh, is fallen asleep in the Lord, is addressed, pray for us without any question, uh, and uh, the catacombs are full of those inscriptions. Uh, the parents pray for uh, to the baby, their baby whom they lost, Ophelia uh, Nostra uh, Ora Pronobis, pray for us, and so on and so forth. So all this um, are just a little, but the change is embracing so many aspects of the church. Uh, again, in my book, I stress that the Christian worship began as a very violent anti-temple mentality. Uh, destroy this temple, and in the third day I will restore it, but he spoke of the temple of his body, the, something which was not at all in the mind of the apostles in Jerusalem, was to build churches. However, what was in their mind was to build the church, the church which is his body. Uh, the anti-temple, violently anti-temple. Reread re the speech of St. Stephen the Protomartyr. If it's not a violent protest against this, this reduction of the cult to the temple, to the sacredness, um, uh, not to speak of, of uh, uh, the rituals to which we are today absolutely used. In the great battle, what was the almost the demonic thing for the early Christians was, believe it or not, incense. Some members of the art choir here share that opinion. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, the incense, which uh, 
Uh, for a short service, we usually send a minimum of three times. Uh, sometimes more, you know, Easter service, it's, it's nine oats, nine cents, it's plus everything else. Uh, that was because the, the, what the Christians were forced to do was exactly to place a few grains of incense uh, before the image, the imago of the emperor. Therefore, incense was the pagan rite which the church totally rejected. Um, and so on and so forth. They will not enumerate uh, all the things which at first did not exist and then came into existence. Now, it is this, this precisely this radical change did not exist or even were rejected, then became accepted that leads an oversimplified logical scholarly mind to say was a contradiction. Something happened. And then you always have to explain what happened. For some people it's the surrender of the church to a kind of religiosity, you know. In fact to paganism. Uh, for some others it's it's uh, the replacement of the early Christian faith with some other of the Christian, early Christian experience with some other experience of salvation. But the, the magnitude of the change is so great that everyone feels that it must be explained almost in such radical terms. Now, leaving outside all these other explanations, this is what, uh, how, uh, what conclusions to which I came and which I think correspond um, to the known fact and to the logics of the church and to the Christian faith. I would uh, start by, first of all, defining the early Christian worship as I understand it. And that definition takes exactly one word. The essence of the early Christian cult, of the liturgia, of the lex orandi of the early church, is uh, overwhelmingly and exclusively eschatological, and I must explain immediately what that means, because the word is used in 3,000 different ways. By eschatological, or rather by eschatology, usually what is meant is the doctrine of the end, the doctrine of the end. Uh, the, 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 what, what the church believes about the end, uh, because eschaton is the end or the ultimate in uh, in uh, the um, in Greek. So eschatology, or which is sometimes called in Latin de novissimis, of the last things, the doctrine of the last things. It includes the doctrine of, for example, the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. It includes the doctrine of uh, the judgment and all the sub-judgments that we can introduce there, the present judgment, the individual, the personal, it, it um, uh, implies the doctrine of uh, uh, salvation in sense, who goes, who is saved, who is not. And of course, it implies, or it, 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 it has in it the doctrine of uh, the state, the ultimate state of those saved, that means the nature of what we call paradise, and uh, the nature of where the sin for people go, that is hell. Now, this uh, chapter of theology, 
novissimis, the eschatology, comes usually at the very end of systematic theology, because systematic theology has at least been converted to, to, to very simple logics of human race, that the end comes at the end, and it's better to begin at the beginning. Uh, now, that was a tragical mistake, by the way, uh, because in fact, um, uh, 90% of that which we find in all these the novissimus, all those treaties. Uh, I wish I would uh, uh, get an answer. Where do, how do the people know? Where is the evidence for all that knowledge? Uh, it's very, very, very meager knowledge anyway. That treaties usually, if everything else is 55 pages, that would be two pages. Uh, but uh, in fact, you know, uh, precisely, Christ did not. No. When asked the eschatological question, when dost thou restore the kingdom of Israel? When are you returning? He never said then at this particular. He never. He just even. Uh, in fact, he said something like, "It's not none of your business to know that." Uh, today only we have finally Christians who seem to know exactly what Christ didn't know himself. Uh, that. Uh, so all this is uh, that type of eschatology, uh, which is a systematic knowledge of how Christ will come, where he will come, what he will do, what will be the judgment, and so on and so forth, is absent, for example, from patristic investigations. The fathers were not preoccupied with that kind of eschatology at all. And um, uh, therefore, they are not, they were not developed. In Orthodox theology inherited that eschatology from the Western theology, which was, uh, since the days of early scholasticism, was obsessed with the idea of a full system in which everything has to be answered. There are nine orders of angels. There are principalities and dominions. What are, is the difference between the two? I don't know. As an Orthodox theologian, I'm not supposed to know that. Uh, but that would not be a right answer in the medieval Sorbonne. Uh, angeology, angelology would be the doctrine in which finally we'll have to know what is. Is it something like colonel and captain or something else? We don't know. Uh, so the eschatology of that nature was simply inherited, uh, although it existed always in uh, some devotional, semi-popular form. Uh, we are in a graduate school of theology, and therefore I think we can uh, very openly say that the church doesn't even pay too much attention when, for example, after the Christianization of the empire, uh, the very pagan ideas simply were taken to the church, ninth day, fortieth day. Uh, no. uh, there are some people who from this ninth day celebration and fortieth day uh, immediately create a kind of system. Uh, I've heard two ladies speak in my presence, very orthodox ladies, uh, last summer uh, debating theology and I uh, really uh, kept my breath. Uh, because one said, I read a very interesting book, she said, in which it says that um, uh, the soul after the death 
goes, I forgot where, uh, and uh, is no longer with us. And the other one said, but this is not Orthodox, because the Orthodox teaches that for nine days the soul is with us. Now all I wanted to argue, ladies, is what does it mean? Simply, what does it mean the soul is with us? What does it mean? In my closet? <laughs> this is one of the totally meaningless statements if there is one that I ever heard. Because it seems to me to ask where is the source of one that is, is, is absolutely illogical, right? But they're, they're really they're theologizing. Uh, it's not here, it's here. If it's not here, where is it? If it's here, where is it? What is the here and the there in that conversation? Uh, so that kind of popular um, eschatology has always been extremely popular. People always saw signs and so on. But if you take the royal, the mainstream of theology, the one defined, let's say, by the great patristic vision, that is absent. So it is not that eschatology which I have in mind when I say that the early church was, uh, her, her experience was eschatological. But by the eschatology, and this is why I think that, that theology having placed the end at the end, and thinking that it is simply in, um, in uh, compliance with the rules of logic made a terrible mistake. Because the whole experience of the church, around, of the early church, the basic experience, the one that it's not even explained to anyone because this is the Christian faith that in fact the end has come. That is the, that, that not the end in the sense of an interruption of human life. Not the end in terms of death. Not an end in, 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 in the terms of the earth and the, the heavens were burned down. But the end, if by end we mean the revelation, the presence, the coming to us of the ultimate. Of that which is the end of everything of that which reveals uh, the ultimate meaning of all that exists and of all the developments and that is of course the kingdom of God. The, 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 the kingdom of God has been revealed. Therefore the eschaton, the ultimate, has taken place. The, uh, in that history in what the New Testament calls this world, that which is not of this world, that which is the eternal plan of God, what He eternally meant when He created the world. All that has been accomplished. Uh, and when we kneel on the day of Pentecost and say of this great and last day of Pentecost, the Pentecost for the early church was not the feast simply of the Holy Trinity, but the feast of the ultimate outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when He comes, we are in the new aeon. The, this world comes to an end. This is, now, this is not an intellectual state. None of these sentences probably would have been the sentences used by uh, the preachers or the apostles. Uh, they, they expressed it in some other way, but whatever they said, 
the tonality, the first of all, the joy, the joy of the early church is about this ultimate having come and remain in the midst of us. And don't ask where the kingdom of God is, for the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. I think that the only service uh, in, in, in the present tradition which is still fundamentally faithful to that skill. All the others are, of course, faithful to it, but not in the same intensity, is the Easter night, especially as celebrated in our right. Because if someday we come to study of the Easter, it was from the very beginning not the feast, simply historical commemoration of Christ's resurrection. That we commemorate on every Sunday, and in fact, you know, this is a starting point. It was the, the annual feast of the passage Passover into that we have, and thou hast opened to us the gates of paradise. And, uh, and thou hast introduced. So the whole, what is that night? That night, according to St. Gregory of Nyssa, which is brighter than the day, is the presence among us of that which for this world is still the future, but which in the church is given is given. Now, this is the eschatological experience of the church. The great events, death, crucifixion, death, descend into Hades, the resurrection, the ascension, and uh, the, 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 the coming down of the Holy Spirit are all events which bring about the, the fullness of the kingdom of God. Of course, the early church still believes that Christ will return in glory uh, to, to, to uh, 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 that still, that future still remains, the horizon of history is still that coming, uh, but his coming is uh, a horrible thing for the world to which he comes as a judge, but for the church. It's something of which the whole church, and especially the church's liturgy, is a constant rehearsal. A constant rehearsal. If you analyze that which we still have from the early church's Lex Orani, the preference of the night as time of prayer, uh, and not the day. The day, um, in the day we work, and not because we pray at night, you know, but the night, the night which is every day, the, 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 the very figure, the very presence of the end of this world dying is the time when the Christians are waiting for. For the bridegroom comes at midnight and blessed is the, the, the servant whom he will find uh, expecting. So maybe those words can, can, can give you the taste of, of this eschatological experience of the early church. Uh, in fact, it, didn't it doesn't develop. It's, it's first, it's expressed almost entirely in biblical, uh, in biblical uh, texts. You know, the early church doesn't need uh, or doesn't feel the need for a kind of specifically Christian hymnology. Uh, even today, when we reach the crucial, the very crucial moments of the of the liturgical year, did you notice that? Uh, well, take for example. Uh, how to, where to start the teaching about what repentance is. Read the 50th Psalm. Nothing better has ever been, you know, 
even after Pentecost. That sound remains. Have mercy upon me, Lord, for and thou will wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. So this is what uh, Christ himself, to prove, not to prove, to express, what he makes his own as the words on the cross. All that is in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, so, uh, what is the way? We can forget all Christian hymnography on the Holy Week. It will be enough, enough to say the great canticle of Moses. For he has glorified himself to know exactly what happened. And to listen to those 15 uh, parimies about the, uh, we'll find there everything. Shine, shine, forth, new Jerusalem. It's all there. So, the early church, uh, this is its relationship that Old Testament, all that is fulfilled. All that is the great day has begun. It's the great and the last day, and it lasts. And the church is its presence in the world. And the church bears testimony to it, and the church. So, what, um, what is the, 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 uh, uh, the, what is absent, therefore, uh, from the early Christian, um, uh, and that is where we come to the real uh, important point for my course, what is absent from the early Lex Orandi, from the early uh, worship, are those elements which will precisely later appear for very precise reasons but which the early church doesn't deny but doesn't need either. For example, the whole didactic moments. Very soon, by the beginning of the third century, liturgy will become a school. First of all, the school for catechumens. The catechumens will be introduced in the church by means of attending the worship and the learning. The liturgy will become the manual, the textbook. Not so in the early church. Uh, that's why St. Paul, uh, uh, when he constantly quotes the liturgical exclamations, such as Maran Apah, or uh, he doesn't explain you know, the, the, all because all those um, uh, text exclamations are all eschatological, all united by this fundamental fundamental faith, fundamental Christian event in Christ, the new life, the life beyond the grave, is when the early church says, and there is no dead in the grave, they mean it. I, I'm, I'm emphasizing that because I do not know what it means for the modern Christian. I don't know. I wish I knew. In fact, we love the funeral much more than the doctrine of the resurrection. This is something really, really which, but what, when we sing, don't eight or, 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 not, or seven or four, I don't know, and there is no death in the grave, what then we do on the memorial? Uh, and uh, if there are nobody there. But the, the Christian church really believed that death has been abolished. You say, but death hasn't been abolished. They all died. Maybe we have, we mean something different by death. Huh? That's the whole point. What we mean by death is not what the church means by death. And that's where the whole misunderstanding begins to accumulate. But the faith of the early church is, therefore there is no didactic material. The church, the liturgy is only for those who already believe. And they believe because they had that experience of that eschaton. So it's enough. Uh, today, you know, we have to say, Lord, have mercy 40 times. And at the end, we don't know what we say. Uh, because, uh, the early church, uh, on Alleluia, 
We use it so much that we have forgotten uh, even the meaning of that. We know that it comes at the end of the prayer, uh, this and that. But for, uh, this is one of the crucial early Christians' words, Alleluia. The whole Paschal celebration at one time was a triple Alleluia. One Alleluia and one candle. Two Alleluias and two candles. Three Alleluias and three candles. Christ is risen. Uh, uh, because, uh, and that is a very interesting question, how, how you express, you know. You know that uh, there are two different ways of expressing the holiest part of the Eucharist. Holy, holy, holy Lord God of Sabbath. We find in the early tradition those who read the whole canon aloud, the whole canon aloud, and that means, although before these stand cherubim and, uh, and then the victorious song shouting, proclaiming and saying, and here comes the composer by the name of uh, I don't know who, and uh, this is the one in the 18th century, even brought in orchestra and even guns to really express, uh, under Catherine the Great, yes, to express the solemnity of the holy, holy, holy. But you have the other school, which the whole canon is read. It is uh, before they stand, the cherubim and the six cherubim and the holding their wings and blah, 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 and so on and so forth, shouting, proclaiming, and saying, without seeing that. The sum of all the possible music is talents and, and so on and so forth. So the early church, and that is very important for us, did, is at the moment, because they pray still in the synagogue, in the temple, they don't need to repeat. All that, the Old Testament is here. The only thing which they have as there is baptism and Eucharist, a couple of acts, something absolutely essential, and all that as the same passage, from the old into the new, from the old dead world, this world, into the kingdom of God. Then, what is totally absent in the early eschatological cult of the church is any illustrative moment. It is not didactic, but it is also not illustrative. The very idea that a ceremonial like the one which became very popular later on in Christian society. Palm Sunday, some patriarch being placed on that ass, led around the city, you know, people, and on and so forth, would, uh, would be to, to, uh, to pull something which you would never understand. Why do you need that? Why do you need that? What happened in that, uh, in that day in Jerusalem, uh, the whole liturgy is constantly there. That me king is coming to you. Know, uh, so, that moment which appears later on, and again we'll see for what reasons, of illustration, to make the liturgy an audio-visual aid. Uh, to have the children um, wearing those, um, uh, bearing those em emblems of victory, and to have the children and the palms and this and that, uh, is absent from the church. It is not didactic, it's not illustrated, and last but not least, uh, it is not, it is not world-oriented. It is not a means of Christian preaching or propaganda. In fact, baptism and Eucharist, the two essential expressions of the early Christian cult, are under the total disciplina arcana. No one is admitted to that. The preaching we preach Christ 
Paul does not preach the cult. Just opposite to us, the greatest uh, act of mission later on becomes precisely the worship. Not for the early church. Why? Because there were too many, in the epistle of the, of the Corinthians is a good example of too many people who would go and add to their great list of mysteries, ceremonies, and things like that. Oh, one more ceremony. Uh, fantastic. They would go at 4 o'clock to the Mitra mysteries and at 5 o'clock to the Orthodox uh, Christian Last Supper. And there are even today, there are people who, who just feel, you know, obsessed when, when another little people are constantly asking me, why do we don't serve the liturgy of St. James? Now, I'll tell you why, because I, I, I think, why, why do we need that? What is the urgent need for the liturgy of St. James? My Lord, give me to understand what I'm doing at Chrysostom. There I will spend the whole liturgy saying, uh, it's not quite the same way, you know, and so on and so forth. So what? Yeah, but it's an ancient liturgy. Maybe I'm too Cartesian. French education, but it doesn't seem what it's ancient, so what? Very good, it's ancient. Uh, the Babylonian statues in, 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 in uh, Metropolitan Museum is even more ancient. I, I'm not being able to do in the saliva when people say ancient. <laughs> no. Uh, what is ancient is not interesting. What is true and life giving is, is important. Therefore, it is not. Um, uh, the, the early church is not world-oriented in terms of, there is nothing to show. Everyone knows what's going on. Just we finished that example of the Eucharist which St. Paul celebrates in that uh, apartment house in Mary Cross. And believe me, it was not in, 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 in the rich quarters or some, some minority, some Puerto Rican district, I'm sure. I mean, uh, the, the Syrians were that, that thing at that time, you know, and, uh, uh, or the Jews. And uh, so wherever he was, and what was it? We, we know that there was candy. We know it was bread, wine, you know. But it wasn't uh, something to which will uh, uh, invite an ecumenical group from the neighboring parish to see what we Orthodox do on this. And you see, uh, because that was not the point of the conflict. What was the point of the The point, the goal, the task of the conflict was always to see, always to see, by fulfilling the church, to ascend to his table at his kingdom, to reach that point at which the beginning and the end coincide, at which we are made partakers of the eternity, to which we have nothing else to do except to, to, to thank God and to leave and then to say to the others, the Lord has come, the Lord is coming, the Lord shall come. It is that eschatological liturgy which is at the beginning of the whole Christian liturgical development. Now, you can ask me, does it disappear? No. But the whole development, all the changes that were brought about, uh, were changes so as to make it possible for the Christian liturgy to be still the same essential message. And it is because the Church very early in her history, is entering a world with a totally new cultural religious situation that the change is. The change is the answer of the church to that challenge which now faces her at the moment when the world is about to accept Christianity.
And if we understand for just one leap, it is the world who asks God, man in one person, two persons, two natures, one person, how, how? It is the world that says arithmetic doesn't one, not three, three is not one. The church didn't think of that. This Jesus what now the church begins to answer. She begins to look at having a kind of second hard look. What is the faith? What is the meaning of that hallelujah? And it is as if something which was given in its fullness from the very beginning. And which we experience from time to time, even today, when we don't have any questions. When everything is nothing but light and fullness of joy. It is when the world began to ask, to check. And the world even took the form of a very pious presbyter by the name of Arius, who piously decided to, to apply some philosophical criteria to all that which appeared to him an enthusiastic nonsense. It is when the church began, had to answer, at the risk of losing that eschatological experience, at the risk of losing, had to answer. It is then that the development began. It is then that all those changes appeared. And if I add to you now, after the recess, what exact changes to what exact needs or challenges we have to stage set for the understanding of why at a certain moment there enters into the church without anyone being amazed, without anybody asking the questions which, which uh, 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 today, all of a sudden, uh, people are asking. Why in the center of that experience there appears that woman dressed in glory? Why so normally, so self-evidently, one of the answers to the church, of the church, uh, to the address to the church by the world? What do you believe? Who is Christ? What is the kingdom? What is your joy about? The church not only points to Christ, but pointing to Christ, the discover standing on the right and left hand of him, Mary and John the Baptist, and the company of heaven and so on and so forth. It is this continuity that we have now to find behind the formal and superficial evidence of the facts. This has been Schmemann Speaks, featuring the words and wisdom of Father Alexander Schmemann. For more, visit St. Vladimir's Seminary online at svots.edu.